Welcome to Dateline New Haven, WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, the big headlines for a year now, and it has been a year, is Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. A year ago they went in, thought they were going to walk in, take over a sovereign nation. And a year later, Ukraine's standing, fighting with it all its might. And many of us in the world, the Western world, are cheering them on and helping them, especially the Ukrainian community in New Haven. We're going to talk about that today to mark the anniversary with two people at the front lines in New Haven in the Ukrainian-American community organizing support for Ukraine in its battle for survival. Say good morning to Myron Melnick, coming back to show an active member of St. Michael the Archangel Ukrainian Catholic Church on George Street. Myron has often been a face of the community for larger uh, New Haven and Connecticut at large and gets invited down to Washington and is a person the Congressman Center's check in to, with when they want to figure out how best we can help our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And Carl Harvey, from the, the commander of the Ukrainian-American Veterans Post 33, which has been on the ground day-to-day organizing the shipping of supplies to people in Ukraine. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you for having us, Paul. Pleasure, we're pleasure we're probably going to be, be joined by one or two others in the course of this program. So, Myron, a year later, how does it look? You were here a couple times earlier in the conflict. How, how are we holding on? How are you holding on? Well, as you mentioned... Um, and please get close to the mic, if you don't mind. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, everybody is surprised... Um, over the past year, Ukraine's military, Ukraine's people have shown unbelievable uh, courage and resilience in withstanding this onslaught, which continues. Um, however, I'm a little bit less uh, sympathetic or a little bit less sanguine about the future because time is not on Ukraine's side. With the passage of time, there'll be more casualties. There'll be more infrastructure destroyed. Ukraine's economy is suffering. It's on life support and wouldn't be able to function without Western support. I think the GDP dropped something like 40% last year. Wow. Uh, Russia continues to control access to the Black Sea, which is critical for any exports for Ukraine. And those are not really happening. And we have to remember that Russia has three and a half times the population of Ukraine. Ukraine has 40 million, Russia has 140 million. Uh, uh, So that is a sizable numerical advantage and over time that advantage will be felt because not only do they have a much larger army today, but they have the ability to expand that army significantly. And Putin in his latest speech this week has mentioned that that is now a critical necessity for Russia to proceed and expand their military might. So without at all contradicting anything you said, the inspirational story of the first year has been that the country's still standing. The idea was that a superpower, atomic superpower, was going to march into Kiev and just take over the country. I think a lot of people thought that was going to happen. I've known about you guys. It didn't yeah. happen. And now they haven't even made a hold on some of the territory they took on their border with Ukraine, on the eastern border of Ukraine. And they have, as you pointed out, they can suffer more deaths because they have a bigger population, they have more weapons. But I think they've had more, I'm like, I could be wrong. I mean, entire cities and, and, and towns have been flattened in Ukraine. Millions have been 
sent as refugees around the world. And yet somehow, the survival's an incredible story. And how, are you saying you don't think it could go on much longer? No, I think there will be survival. I think the Ukrainian nation will overcome in the end. But I think we have to persevere and be prepared for a war of attrition because that kind of a war plays into the Russian strength. And they're waiting out the West NATO, United States. One thing they thought that by now we weren't going to hold together, right? They thought Germany would break off. They have right. friends in Turkey. They have friends in Hungary who was part of NATO. And somehow Poland surprised everybody. Poland became ardent embrace of, of the fight against Russia. They've welcomed two million permanent refugees in a country that was anti-immigrant until the beginning of this war. What's been the biggest surprise for you, Myron? Checking it out. It's not such a surprise because... Poland didn't surprise you. Uh, well, not only Poland, but uh, even Germany was a, a bigger surprise because right. Germany has had a history of cooperating with... And economic uh, dependence. Economic dependence, increasing oil and gas dependence, you know, the whole uh, Nord Stream projects, uh, the fact that a former chancellor of Germany became on the board of Gazprom, which is the main energy-providing entity in Russia. So they had a deepening relationship with Russia. And the fact that they are now breaking that relationship is a major, major event. In now, your work has been in New Haven, correct, the two of you. Carl, how often are you folks gathering supplies and what kind of supplies to send from George Street to locations in Ukraine? You were showing me some of the pictures in your scrapbook. Mm -hmm. Uh, we generally have, um, take items in uh, that are uh, donations from <clears throat> from uh, all over the state of Connecticut. Uh, we also have people from uh, New Hampshire and uh, in other places. We've actually received packages from uh, from as far away as Texas, uh, um, sending things into us. And uh, the types of things we're we're collecting. Our uh, med uh, medical supplies and equipment. Uh, the equipment are things like uh, wheelchairs and walkers and commodes, and uh, um, uh, actually some Hoyer lifts and and some hospital beds. Uh, and then on that's uh, on the medical side, uh, we've also been working very closely with um, uh, a program called Remedy, which is um, kind of an offshoot from uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, um, Yale New Haven Health. Uh, that has uh, been providing us uh, with uh, some of the supplies which uh, normally would be discarded by the hospital but are are not contaminated so that we're able to you know we're able to get them and, and send them over and, and uh, I also saw you sending pampers you're sending that is correct <laughs> so that's, are everyday people sending clothes so altogether do you have any numbers for us estimates not you know, hard, fast, uh, uh, what uh, we've uh, sent over the past year from New Haven. Estimated value is uh, $5.5 million worth of uh, items. And is it huma all humanitarian? All humanitarian, yep. From New Haven. That is correct. Any kind of breakdown at all? It's a fine <laughs> if you don't have it, like uh, numbers of beds or numbers of... No, that's, uh, that, that, that's astronomical. We do have to put an inventory list on each box of uh, what goes over, and I have to send that information to NEPRO, which is the company and, and you coordinated right Carl that is correct yep and where in Ukraine does this go you showed me a hospital <clears throat> well I've, uh, the containers go into uh, um, and to Poland and then it's transferred in uh, Gdansk Poland and then it's transferred down to 
a warehouse in Chavonarad, uh, which is uh, in the Lviv region of, uh, uh, of uh, western Ukraine. And uh, it actually goes to a, a warehouse that is um, uh, run by uh, Father Roman Manulak. Father Roman uh, Manulak is, uh, is the son-in-law of uh, my housekeeper and her husband, who have uh, worked for me for, uh, for, for 10 years. Uh, and it's uh, through her and Father Roman that all of this is... Uh, Where is Father be. Roman? Father Roman uh, is in Vinic. Uh, that's V I or V Y N N Y K Y, which is just outside of Lviv, and uh, um, uh, um, all of the stuff goes to his warehouse, and then he brings it to um, another hospital, which is um, a veterans hospital in 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 Vinic. And, uh, and and how have you found? The challenge of keeping people interested, keeping the contributions flowing. Has it been an ebb and flow? Are people still pouring in? When you look at $5.5 million of humanitarian assistance that we've, uh, that we've sent over, was that mostly at the beginning? Are you seeing an upsurge with the one-year anniversary? No, it's, uh, it's been, it's been uh, kind of a constant flow. So. And why, how is, now let me ask you that, Myron, because, Myron, your job is partly, if I'm not mistaken, to be the ambassador, I'd call you that, to the wider community. How are you keeping people informed and concerned about uh, about the about the effort and getting people to care? There's a lot of things to care about in the world. As Carl has mentioned, we've had consistent and steady support from our community, um, all the way down the shoreline as far north as the Hartford area. Uh, we just got a recent uh, call from. A Middletown Hospital, they have some leftover surplus COVID supplies that they're mm. going to donate to us. And so we keep things going and stay I'm just thinking philosophically people. or strategically. A lot of stuff goes on in the world. Civil wars all around the world, famines. you got the earthquake, Turkey and Syria. How do you get people to still care about this sovereign democratic nation of 40 million people that's just has a neighbor that's trying to just overrun it and take it over. How do you get someone to care about that in their lives here in New Haven? I think in New Haven and in the entire United States, there's a deep-rooted sense of helping and cheering for the underdog, especially Mm. if the underdog is fighting a brutal neighbor who invaded and is trying to destroy it. There is a strong sense of preserving democracy and allowing people to determine their own fate rather than being overrun by more powerful neighbors and countries. So that is kind of a historical root core belief in the American population. And so they see what's going on in Ukraine on the news. They read about it. They talk to people about it. And so that message resonates. It has. And did you know that was going to be true? I was a little skeptical. What always strikes me is when I walk around town or from my backyard, all of a sudden it'll hit me, okay? I care about things going on in my life, and they matter. Things going on in my community, they matter. But then I look up, I said, you know, if I were in Ukraine, I'd have to worry that this house right now is going to get bombed, if not me killed. When I'm walking downtown in the middle of my city, the city hall, the library, the place I go to work, there could just be a bomb falling on it any day. I, a, I wonder how people, because obviously people in Ukraine have adjusted to that and they continue going out, they continue leading their lives, they continue resisting, but also how we in, in this country process it and then translate it to helping Carl or others 
get materials over there and have our elected officials know we want them to stand strong. As I mentioned, there is a deep-seated uh, reserve that people have in this country. People in this country are not just concerned with their day-to-day -day survival. Fortunately, the country is wealthy enough and people have the means and the ability to have a normal life. And so there is a reserve that is left over for volunteer work. And this is a long-standing tradition in the United States. To so you weren't surprised? Not really. A year ago you said, I could be here a year from now. Russia will not have won, and people in my home city are still going to care and help me support them. Yes. All right, we're talking about that on Dateline New Haven. I'm glad some people have hope and uh, informed hope because you're not, you're not a Pollyanna about what, what lies ahead in the second year of this war. On Dateline New Haven, WNHH-FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Talking to Mari Melnick and Carl Harvey, leaders in the Ukrainian-American community, in support of the Ukrainian nation as they try to resist the invasion by russia and we have two other folks joining us alexi antony and now new york did i get that right oh can you go in the mic i'm sorry uh-huh and you've been on before guy with a great sense of humor even in uh tough times <laughs> your student yale correct uh yes yes according to a junior a junior and um, i'm sorry i haven't met you yet uh, what's your name christina logvinyuk and christina are you at um at yale as well yes i'm a sophomore at yale and um, I'm going to ask you to get real close to that mic and look into it. Christina, did, did you come directly from Ukraine to Yale? I did not. I am from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. My parents are from Western Ukraine, though. I was raised very Ukrainian here in the States. And again, if I'm going to ask you to get so close to that mic, maybe pull it to you so that you're almost touching it because I can hear you more clearly. You have a Ukrainian accent, but you grew up in Cleveland. You know, I've been told I have accents in Ukrainian when I speak in Ukrainian. I've been told I have accents in English when I speak in English. I think that comes from being forced to read in Ukrainian every day in an American household here. So, so you were in your second semester at Yale. Uh, I'm in my second year. Yeah, but last year at this time, you were in your second semester at Yale. Yes. A young person, new phase of your life. You're already in the midst of a, a pandemic that has made your college experience and coming of age experience different from previous generations. And then this invasion of your, your parents' homeland hits. How did that affect you? And how has that affected your life in the past year? You know, I think any conscious Ukrainian or anyone who considers themselves a conscious Ukrainian remembers where they were the moment they realized what was happening in the country. Um, for me, it has always been vital to share information about Ukraine previously to 2014, previously to the full-scale invasion. Um, and I think that's just been magnified immensely with this war. Um, everyone has their own front. Um, some people are literally on the front, and we must be supporting them constantly. But everyone has their own front. For us as students, it's gaining enough knowledge to be able to contribute in the future. And at that same time, we can be spreading information. I talk about it's like to not be Ukrainian, to live in this country and just wander out of the blue from time to time. If I were in Ukrainian, I'd see that building right there. I'd be looking around me wondering, you know, that that could happen at any moment, which is not a reality in my life. What's it like to be someone who is of Ukrainian heritage what do you think about day to day how does this enter your consciousness as you live your life as a student in america you know someday you're you're walking down the street you're observing the beautiful architecture we have on our campus and it comes in and out uh, after a year you start um forgetting at times what is happening um as you go on with the mundane moments of your life 
Um, and then it comes back, it flows back, and you realize that you need to put in more effort into what you're doing here because that's the only way to counteract the emotions that come from um, living and understanding what is currently happening. As I'm peacefully walking down the street right now here, what is happening to my peers in a different country who, who, sh who should be living their lives in school. Um, and do you have family school. members who are still in Ukraine? I do, I do. Mine, fortunately, are mostly in Western Ukraine, so they're not as close to the front. Some are in Kyiv, some are in uh, further Eastern uh, portions as one of my third cousins is a medic. Um, and so you just, you kind of hear in waves and you're constantly worried and that's constantly in the back of your mind. So you can imagine how taxing that is on a day-to-day. So, Christina and um, Alexi, what are you doing in terms of support for Ukraine right now, either on campus in New Haven? What are, you, what are some of the specific efforts you've been making, some of the activities you've been involved? And again, I'm going to ask you, because so close to that mic, you're almost touching it. Well, I think at Yale, um, students can do essentially two functions. One function is to help educate uh, future American leaders uh, about Ukraine and to instill pro-Ukrainian narratives. For instance, that Ukraine is, is, is a victim of the Russian aggression, that Ukraine is defending its democracy and freedom against Russian imperialism. Uh, and I think we need, we need more Yale students to hear these ideas, uh, to engage and to understand what the war really is. And this one line of effort uh, we are right now exhorting, um, we are going to be having tomorrow at 12 Friday. p.m., uh, tomorrow on February 24th, through the anniversary of the first uh, Russian invasion, we're, we're going to have a panel discussion with Professor Snyder, uh, Kiev Deputy Mayor Usov, and Professor Marcy Shore. Um, and this discussion, we already have 200 people registered for it. Um, it will be uh, we'll be discussing what the first year of the war has looked like, what place in history uh, it has taken, and what awaits us further in the future. So it sounds to me like two of you are concerned with the issues how you keep Yale community, which is an influential community, future leaders, current people of influence, how you keep them focused on what this war means and support. Any other specific, are you part of a student organization, any specific relief efforts or others you're taking on? We, we have a Ukraine house at Yale, which is a student organization. Ukraine house? Yes, Ukraine Where's house that? at Yale. Well, uh, Ukraine house is a more of a name rather than a physical place, but maybe in the future it will be a physical place. Um, but Ukraine house at Yale, uh, we organize... It's a student Ukrainian organization. Um, and outside of promoting discourse about Ukraine on campus, we are also uh, fundraising money for relief or for assistance to Ukrainian military. Uh -huh. Right now, uh, we are having a large fundraiser aimed at uh, gathering funds for Ukrainian um, electricity generators mm -hmm. to, the battle to the battlefield. Um, because one of the biggest troubles that Ukraine is facing is the missiles. Russian missiles keep falling on Ukrainian cities and energy infrastructure. So that very often there is literally no electricity. And generators is the only way to keep the house heated. Is the only way to keep the economy and, and the country in general running. So we are helping Ukraine with this uh, generator. So you're raising money, relief. you're raising consciousness. And does Ukraine house partly, because you're talking about all different houses at Yale for different groups of students. So partly a mutual support thing, Christina. Do you, do you find it helpful to have, do you guys have dinner and talk about your families and how you, is it helpful to be around other Ukrainian students and how many are there? There are quite a few and, and they come from all different walks of life. So some are international students straight from Ukraine. Some are students um, part of the diaspora like I am who grew up here. 
um, and we all join together and share our very different but um, unified experience of being Ukrainian. Um, I think towards the beginning of the war, it was really, um, without community, this wouldn't have been possible to get through. Um, having mutual support in, in this trying time, whether that is from, even from American friends who don't have a personal stake in the matter, mm-hmm. they, they supporting you is one of, one of the, the greatest blessings I've had in this community uh, throughout this war. Thank you. We're talking about the Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine a year later and efforts in New Haven and elsewhere to support the Ukrainian people. What about on the ground? What weapons are coming there that are needed and what kind of, you know, there's been a whole debate about how, what kind of lines can the U.S. cross? They don't want to go use anything that goes into Russia with any American personnel, but we are going to be sending advisors now to help train. What do you need from America that you're not getting? The most immediate need on the ground right now is longer range missiles. These have been promised, but they are only now beginning to be delivered. Um, Having short range missiles, which are currently available, limits the range and the ability of Ukraine's armed forces to destroy arms depots, other critical infrastructure for the Russian army, which enables it to continue and expand its aggression. Beyond that, it's important to get tanks in place. And again, these have started coming in, but it's very, very slow. I understand there's some training going on on these Leopard tanks in Poland, in other countries of Europe, but it's too little, too slow. And it's important to get more of that kind of weaponry in place right away because there is an anticipated offensive from Russia in the spring months once the ground becomes... Is there any hope, though, early on there was a lot of this in the West and that kind of died down, that at some point Putin's control will collapse either interior fights among the Wagner group and other members of his um, coalition that he's trying to keep together of a failing military? Is there any hope that in the next year Russia's ability to wage this war will push them to a place where they need to concede and negotiate? Or do you think this is going to be a battle to the end, whoever prevails, including Crimea, getting back Crimea? I think it's going to be a protracted war. There's an election in Russia next year. Putin is not going to be running on a peace platform. Putin, in his latest speech, has talked about beefing up the military and recognized that as a weakness. And by dragging out the war, this gives him the time to do that. And will the Russian people ever get you have any capacity to again if you look at or elites if you look at the internal propaganda going on in russia now it is no longer a special military operation it is now a war in putin's speech he said it is a war that the west started that nato and the u.s started and now russia has no choice but to defend itself russian propagandists are talking about this as the third patriotic war the first one being Napoleon in 1812, the second one being World War II, and that is now this current conflict, this current war is being shaped into a great And it is becoming war. much more of a potential world war than it was a year ago, and anyone can jump in on this, by the way. Um, we're now seeing recent days, it's unclear what China's full intentions are. They're clearly allied with Russia. Will they go over that line and give military aid? Iran certainly is. The West has stayed behind Ukraine, however, Africa has not. And 
and yeah. South America. South America is not. So <laughs> that's right, Lula in, 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 um, in Brazil. So what does this mean now that there seems to be an entering of other nations on both sides? Is this going to come into some kind of broader world war, do you think, Eddie? What do you think? Well, uh, broader world war, uh, I think it is a very far stretch from what the situation currently is. What is happening right now is it's happening in Ukraine, it's happening in Europe. Uh, and imagining China putting troops in Ukraine. Uh, well, not troops, but, but, but even if you're talking about military assistance. Look, the thing is, I think many Americans misunderstand how strong America is. And if America shows strength, then China will not give anything to Russia because China will be afraid of America. But China is also afraid that if Russia fails, they're going to be weakened in their conflict with America in terms of, for instance, if there's ever an invasion of Taiwan, right? So America feels we have a lot at stake in showing that Russia can't just go in and invade a neighbor and that China can't go in and invade an ally in Taiwan, correct? Yes, correct. What is happening in Ukraine has huge ramifications for Taiwan. Because if America is going to be giving giving in as it is currently is doing, giving in to Russian nuclear blackmail, then why cannot China do the same thing with Taiwan? Why can't China do the same thing with Japan and other countries? Um, I think what is happening right now is the fact that Americans are so so afraid to to listen uh, to Ukrainians and be ready to provide more support, more aid. So you I feel you feel that the U.S. isn't going far enough. You feel like no, too America is very strained. America you think is they're worried that Russia is going to push the nuclear bo- button, and you think that's not a realistic worry? Or? Yes, Biden administration policy so far has been that to completely eliminate any risk of further escalation. Um, and this policy, it may seem like a good policy that protects the world. At the end of the day, what works out is that Putin goes out on a stage and says, I'm going to use nuclear weapons. Oh, look at my new uh, long-range intercontinental missile. And then uh, American politicians, instead of evaluating, will Russia really use nuclear weapons? Is Russia ready to do that? Um, instead of doing that, American politicians just give in to Russian demands. For instance, that America imposes artificial line that Ukraine cannot attack targets inside the Russian territory. Like, this is ridiculous. Russia is attacking all over Ukraine. And, you, and according to the rules of war, if one side is attacking all over one country, the other side can respond. It is very natural. But America imposes artificial line where we cannot provide long-range missiles because they will be able to inflict damage on the Russian territory. So what did the four, of escalation. What this did the four good. of you think this week when Biden made his surprise visit to Kiev? Well, the uh, Biden's visit to Ukraine has been extremely important symbolically because Biden showed his personal commitment to Ukraine. And this is the first time that American president has visited a wartime country that did not have American troops on the ground. And I think it shows the dichotomy uh, and the maybe inconsistency, it shows inconsistency the, the, of the American policy right now, is that in one way, America is so, so attached and so committed to Ukraine, rhetorically and symbolically, but at the same time, the weapons transfers do not match this commitment. They are incremental. They're just drip. Trip. Here are like some tanks. Here are some artillery. Here are some ammunition. Should not be like that. Should now, be like what happened you, you, in World War II. Uh, you had a concrete, systematic, full-out uh, military support, and Ukrainians could rely on this military support. Now they cannot. And now you, and you're aware that, that in America, that while the, while the leader, even the Republican leaders of the Senate and the uh, Democrats in the White House <laughs> and the Congress are fully supporting Ukraine, 
you know there's a big segment of the political electorate, the Trump wing, Tucker Carlson, it's the loudest voice against, they're pro-Putin, they're against any more American support. Yesterday, Donald Trump was in Ohio saying, while you're giving, while you're over there with, you know, in Kiev and worrying about Ukraine, you're not worrying about the people here. Carlson is continually the most influential voice in America on political TV, on Fox News, and the people he represents in the U.S. House of Representatives have been very skeptical about further aid. They're saying they're kind of pro-Putin, and they're and how we how are you going to deal with that? What do you what? How does that factor into all this? I think the strategy of some Republican, I'll call them marginalists, because it's certainly not a majority. <laughs> their strategy is to drag this out into the next election campaign, which is not that far away, and then it's a question of who is going to be a candidate and what is the position of that candidate going to be and that has the potential really to disrupt a lot of this bipartisan support certainly we have not heard much from the former president uh, trump this well, we did yesterday he's he was critical of the attention paid on ukraine as opposed yeah. to well I, by, by that i mean we haven't heard much in the way of support or mm-hmm. oh, I see you're saying. or yeah. recognition of Ukraine's uh, courage and perseverance in this war. And I think that is going to become an increasing uh, theme with what President, uh, former President Putin, um, Trump expressed yesterday. And more importantly, Tucker Carlson is really on, yeah. on a rampage against American support for Ukraine. And I think the Russians are depending on that. And that's why they want to drag this out. And they're, they're replaying Fox News on Russian TV repeatedly. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, others, yeah. And there are elections in other European <clears throat> countries. Does that mean we have only a year, Myron? Is this going to be the year that we can count on American support? Even to, you know, as, uh, as um, it was just pointed out a minute ago by Alexi, even that support you feel isn't what it should be. But even this level of support is the last year we can count on that from America? Well, as I said earlier, that time is not on Ukraine's side. The longer this drags out, the worse it's going to be for Ukraine. So certainly accelerate and enhance support gives Ukraine the best opportunity right now while the conditions are accommodating. Because in 2025, the conditions may change and the Russians will still be there. What about Moldova now? We heard in the last day that there's a breakaway republic portion of Moldova bordering Ukraine in the south that is controlled by pro-Russian forces. An ominous statement by Putin yesterday that he claimed that people wearing Russian army uniforms are secretly going to be Ukrainians to provoke a violent conflict there would be the pretext for Russia to attack. What's your interpretation of that? Uh, The Moldovan president, Sanu, has stated that they are controlling the borders because there are people coming in, uh, civilian, um, supposedly, but... uh, they are being stopped at the border, and these uh, people who are coming in from outside have the potential to form a fifth column to undermine the authority of a government. To so then, uh, to Alexa's point, is this more that we're more worried about what Putin's going to do, but he's really going to do it? Like we're worried about Belarus being drawn in? Or is there actually going to be fighting there? Madava, or would you say, Alexei, this is another category where Putin succeeds to cowing the West by playing into fears of what can happen with rhetoric, but he's in fact not in a position to carry out in his own interest. I think you captured it quite correctly, um, that actually Russia is much weaker than we imagine. To be, we think of it as a superpower that is in the past has been unequal to America. Now, like if American military would want 
would engage with Russian military, American military, would take a few weeks to destroy the entire Russian military. Like, Russia is much, much weaker than we think it is. And what is Putin trying to do? Putin is trying to focus on issues that put Russia on par with America, like nuclear weapons, like the UN Security Council and other issues. Um, and then Putin's ability to escalate is really overestimated. What, what else can Putin do? When people talk about, oh, like this war could expand, etc., etc., Putin is already using 100% of Russian military. There is nothing more that Putin can do but for, except for launching nuclear weapons on Ukraine. And Putin will not do this if America stays strong. And the Transnistrian question in Moldova, it is overestimated. The, the, the Russian troops there are combat ineffective. They don't pose any, any, any issue. Uh, with Belarus, um, not in the short run. Uh, Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, he will not allow uh, Belarusian troops to invade Ukraine. It will be a suicide for him, and he understands that. And therefore, Belarusian troops have not entered Ukraine. In the long run, we need to get more accustomed to the idea that Belarus may be part of Russia. Um, however, in the short run, just Putin cannot, cannot escalate. He's too weak, and he wants us to believe that he's not. Is that the consensus of the other three of you? Are everyone's head nodding? What do you think, correct. Myron? That is correct. Um, what will a desperate man do? I'm not convinced that he is at the end of his capability at this point because he's consistently drafting more than he promised to draft in the fall when he proclaimed an additional call-up of 300,000. There's more than that going on. And obviously they're not always the most efficient troops. They're kind of right. being used as fodder. They, they pull them out of the prisons. Human fodder, they, yes. There's human, <laughs> human fodder, yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. I always wonder when you guys talk, and you know, I love hearing you both talk. You know so much about it. Like when I hear Myron and I hear Alexi, I hear two different generations. Am I correct? Do you think there are ways that someone who, you know, you were in the mil U.S. military uh, generations ago, and, and you, and you know, I kind of hear a lot of urgency and idealism from Alexi. Tell me if that's true, where you're just frustrated when you see America's might and you see them not having the resolve because they're cowed by Putin. Whereas, am I correct, Myron, that you might see Putin as someone who's more willing to do something reckless that does not appear to be in his interest? I don't know, what do you think? Or maybe... maybe I'd like to chime in here. Chime in, I please, Christina. I think that what we're looking at is a hope from um, a withdrawal from appeasement from the West. I think if we look back historically, the constant kind of idea has been to de-escalate. And what avenue have we chosen to do that through? Appeasement. Um, and I think in backing Ukraine as, as far as, as Biden physically going there, we're starting to, to step away from that um, appeasement of Russia. And right now is that turning point of whether we will continue on that path or whether we will fall back on what has been done in the past um, to de-escalate via appeasement. It's a good point because in Georgia in 2008, in Crimea and in Donbass in 2014, there's always a tendency to say, well, this is limited. We don't want to escalate. Um, Better because of fact on the ground and stage of ground for the right. next. I also wonder, Myron, whether our generation and Biden needs to hear more from folks of their generation about the need to have courage and not be frightened by your worst fears and to call a bully who might not have as much strength as he thinks on his threats. Do you think that's what's going on here? Yes, this is evil. This invasion violates norms. It violates uh, 
the Charter of the United Nations, of which Russia is a signatory, and they're still unbelievably in the Security Council where they can veto resolutions that are not in their interest, whether it's uh, relating to Ukraine or helping uh, refugees in Syria or Turkey. Uh, and so this is a very clear-cut case of confronting evil, and this is now the line that has to be maintained and drawn. And this is no longer a time for further appeasement and letting Putin have his way. Christina, Alexi tells us about some events taking place at Yale the next two days. I want to ask you a little more about that. I'd just like all of you to tell us about, with the one-year anniversary, some details of events planned. Maybe if Carl and Myron could go first about in the broader New Haven community on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, what, what's going to be happening? Well, on, on uh, Friday evening at uh, St. Michael's Ukrainian Catholic Church, 569 George Street, we're having kind of memorial service. Um, it's been organized by the uh, Knights of Columbus Council at the church. Uh, we've invited uh, from, uh, Senator Blumenthal, who is going to be there. Uh, we've also invited uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, and Senator Murphy, however, because of other commitments, they're not going to be able to be with us. But uh, that's open to anyone who would uh, like to come. It starts at 6 o'clock and will probably end about uh, 7.15, 7.30. It's a 569 George Street in New Haven. Thursday night, there's a forum at School of Management at Yale with Senator Blumenthal about the war. Uh, Friday, 3 p.m., there's a cross-campus vigil at Yale. And then uh, Christina and Alexi were telling us about um, Timothy Snyder and the whole gang of, of, of historians at Yale doing a bunch of forums. On yeah, so, so what we are doing tomorrow for February Friday. 24th anniversary is at 12 p.m. we are going to be having a large panel discussion about one year into Ukraine's defense. Uh, this discussion will include Professor Timothy Snyder, uh, Deputy Mayor of Kiev, Konstantin Usov. In person? or In person. This is oh. going to be in person. Um, and also, the panel will include Professor Marcy Shore. Ma uh, wife of... <laughs> yeah, the wife and one of the most prominent Ukrainian historians these days. Um, this panel will happen again at 12 p.m. in LC 102. Lindsley Chittenden on the old campus. Uh, yes, it is near the old campus. Yeah. Um, then at 3 p.m., we will have the vigil for Ukraine. And this vigil will include a, a speech by Senator Blumenthal, um, and a speech by Konstantin Usov, the deputy mayor of Kyiv. The vigil will happen at 3 p.m. Uh, on cross campus in front of Yale's Strolling Library. So we'll be incredibly grateful if you could join us. He said deputy mayor of Kyiv. Deputy mayor of Kyiv. Okay. And then on, you were telling us, Myron, that Quinnipiac University is going to have their Central American, Central European Institute is going to have a forum on Saturday on the campus there. On Saturday. I'd like to also bring to your attention that, you know, we're doing work here locally. Uh, there are other Ukrainian communities throughout the country that are doing events. Uh, for example, in New York City tomorrow at the Ukrainian Institute, there is a reception for UN diplomats uh, on the occasion of the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And there is a, a benefit concert at Lincoln Center in Manhattan. All proceeds will be raised and, and contributed to relief aid for Ukraine. So this is one effort here, uh, but there are efforts going on as we speak in other 
parts of the country. And we're promoting Enduring Peace and the Worker's Voice as an event, Russia Out of Ukraine, Saturday at 2 p.m. at the Public Library on Elm Street. Carl, anything else you want our listeners to know specifically about ways they can help the Ukrainian people as we start year two? If, <clears throat> excuse me, if they go to my, uh, go to my uh, um, personal Facebook page, which is facebook.com, Carl, that's C-A-R-L-R, R-V-H-A-R-V-E-Y, you'll be able to see the types of things that uh, we have been doing and uh, the information that we're getting is uh, reports back from Ukraine from a uh, from Father Roman Manulak, who is our, our, our contact person in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, you'll get information about uh, the types of things that uh, can be donated to us and uh, a, a site that you can actually contribute funds to to help uh, support the shipping costs for, for, uh, for all of these items that go over there. We also do send money directly to Father Roman for him to buy things over there as well. So uh, that would really help us and, and support us in what we're trying to accomplish. Well, Christina, Lexi from Yale, <coughs> Carl and Myron from St. Michael, thank you so much. I know it's a busy time for coming in here and updating us on WNHHFM about the award. And also I want to I want to ask Lexi and Christina to keep our generation on its toes and remind us about what our values are and how to have courage we absolutely will all right yeah, yeah we can count on it okay good i, I count on you folks uh, so ken and harry droves the best station manager in the business for keeping us on multiverse worth of platforms here on the show we're going to take it out with the afro-semitic experience performing i wish i knew how it would feel to be free from the group cd a plea for peace this is paul bass inviting you to fly free with us all day all night and all weekend long on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.